podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellis, your host. Before we turn to today's topic, I would like to take a moment to recognize and thank all of you who listen to this podcast. You have reached such numbers by now that the algorithms that monitor the internet have noticed us, and like digital birds of prey, they're swooping down on us, sensing profit. So I'm starting to receive large numbers of emails advising me how to monetize this podcast. I take it that this is some kind of sign of success. So let me just say that I will not be monetizing this podcast, uh, which is usually done by introducing advertisements or the like. In fact, to show you exactly how non-commercial I intend this podcast to remain, I give you today's topic, which is on the peoples of the Caucasus between Rome, Iran, and the steppe during the first half of the first millennium AD. This is a fairly esoteric topic, uh, but you know, in a moment I may revise my estimation as to how commercially viable it is. So what is at stake in today's discussion? It's something like this. How can we attempt a global or universal history of some large part of the world while still respecting the cultural distinctiveness of the smaller places and cultures that existed between the larger building blocks? In this case, those larger building blocks are the early Byzantine Empire, the Sasanian Persian Empire, and the Central Asian Steppe, while the smaller cultures between them uh, that we will be discussing were the peoples of the Caucasus, specifically the Georgians, the Armenians, and the Caucasian Albanians, uh, no relation to the Albanians of the Western Balkans. In teaching, as in scholarship, it's sometimes tempting to treat the large empires as our basic building blocks and to present everything in their terms. So, for example, when discussing Armenia, we'll say, well, Armenia got uh, Christianity from the Eastern Roman Empire, and it got ideas of kinship and kingship from the Iranian world, and, you know, kind of mash those together, and voila, you get uh, Armenian history. But this is, of course, overly reductive and schematic, um, and it misses the cultural distinctiveness, the, um, the dynamics that were in play in these areas and their own agency in, in um, maneuvering among, uh, between the two empires uh, and also the steppe world. So writing a universal history that respects these distinctive cultural dynamics on the ground is very difficult to do. Um, if only because on the grounds of expertise, uh, most scholars can, we can barely keep up with our own narrow fields, um, and sometimes not even with the subdiscipline of the subdiscipline of our subfield. Well, today you're going to be hearing from one of the very few people who can plausibly pull this off. Um, I have been very fortunate to know for the better part of three decades now, uh, Garth Foden, uh, who is the Sultan Qaboos of Oman, professor of Abrahamic faiths at the University of Cambridge. Also possibly one of the most awesome academic titles I have ever heard. And he has been engaged in writing the history of the first millennium, uh, which I understand will cover um, everything east of India. I gather that he's also encroaching uh, into uh, India and also deep into Central Asia as well. Those of you who know Garth's work uh, will appreciate just how much he's invested uh, in developing sophisticated frameworks uh, within which we can integrate and understand these larger movements of history. And he also builds them from the ground up, uh, that is, from a thorough knowledge of the sources and the latest scholarship in each area. So what you're going to hear in this episode is a wonderful demonstration of how he combines these different scales of analysis, the macro and the micro, uh, and applies them to a part of the world that many people still uh, find it hard to make sense of. Uh, so trust me, you will come away from this episode with a much clearer understanding of the cultural dynamics of the Caucasian people during a period that proved very formative for them. Garth is writing his history of the first millennium for a general audience which includes all of us. And he presents this world as such a fascinating place to discover that he might very well reinvent its commercial potential. Here then is my conversation with Garth Foden. So welcome, uh, Garth, to the podcast. Hello. So um, this is an unusual podcast episode in that I am not super prepared for it. Um, Garth has 
uh, told me that he wanted to talk about the Caucasus and specifically in the period between the third and early seventh centuries as an area of his current interest. Um, as, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Garth is writing a, a new history of the first millennium, uh, which is very um, all-encompassing. And I think its geographical scope has expanded as we've talked about the book over the years. Um, and you are now finding the area of Caucasia to be very interesting, and you're visiting there, and it's a, it's a central node in the work? Absolutely, yes. Um, and so, so let's talk about that. So how, how do you understand Caucasia? What parts of it um, do you find uh, most relevant to your history of the first millennium? So what role does it play? Well, thank you, Anthony, or Andonis, as I'm more accustomed to call you, uh, for inviting me. And uh, it's true that um, you're committing a great act of courage by inviting me because I don't actually know very much about this subject, but it interests me very much at the moment because, as you said, I'm about to go to the Caucasus. So I've been doing my homework. And the first thing that I needed to find out was where the Caucasus is. And I discovered that it lies at the conjuncture of very different geographical and social and historical zones. So the most uh, striking thing about the Caucasus world is that it's a very, very long, very high range of mountains. Some people say that it separates Europe from Asia, but in that case, both Russia and the lands to the south of the Caucasus, Caucasus would not be in Europe. So it's very hard to decide uh, what's in Europe and what isn't. But the fact that uh, the Eurovision Song Contest was held in Baku uh, suggests that probably we are allowed to regard all this part of the world as European. But nonetheless, the High Caucasus is a very significant geographical boundary between the Eurasian steppe and the mountainous lands to the south. And uh, its highest mountain is the highest mountain in Europe, Mount Elbrus, 5,642 meters. Uh, it's an extremely impressive range, uh, covered with snow, its peaks at least, all through the year. Um, and it seems to be consistent with the general pattern of the mountains of eastern Anatolia, what we call eastern Turkey, uh, which um, appear to be impermeable in a north-south direction, but quite permeable in an east-west direction. So it's quite easy for, let's say, the empires of Asia Minor, whether it's Roman or Ottoman, or Byzantine, um, to communicate with the world of Iran to the east, southeast. Uh, that's the general pattern, and we tend to think of the Caucasus as being very difficult to travel through from north to south or from south to north, but in fact there are major passes. Uh, the Caucasus stretches from the Black Sea to the Caspian, that's the distance. If you were, if you, if you were a bird flying direct, uh, as birds are supposed to do, from Batum on the Black Sea to Baku on the Caspian, you would cover 708 kilometers. Of course, if you do it by road today or by train, it will right. take you much further than that. Um, anyway, the mountains stretch from the Black Sea to the uh, Caspian, and they do have passes. Uh, there are two very famous passes, one called the Dariel Pass, which carries the so-called Georgian military highway from Russia into Georgia. Uh, and then there is at the far eastern end of the uh, Caucasus range, the famous Derbend Pass, also sometimes called the Caspian Gates. And they play a very, very crucial, pivotal role in history, as we'll see later, I imagine. And then to the south of that very high range is uh, a lower area of high plains, which is Georgia, and separated from Armenia by the lesser Caucasus range, and then you slope down gradually into Mesopotamia. So this is a point where the um, Middle Eastern world can communicate with difficulty, but nonetheless it can communicate with the Eurasian steppe world. So that's the general geographical outline. So it's a region where in our period, so again from the 3rd to the 7th century, this is an area where the two great empires, Rome and Persia, did interact um, increasingly in more militaristic terms. So they were fighting wars there in the 6th century. 
um, and so they were in, very much in contact. But it's interesting that both of those empires would at times collaborate to block off the north-south uh, direction of movement, right? So, so they kept open the east-west routes for themselves, you know, pushing you know, right. back and forth. There's this tug of war between the yes. two of them. Um, and, you know, at one time, you know, the, the Persians would reach the Black Sea. At other times, the Romans would sometimes reach the Caspian. Um, but they, they both didn't want any incursions from the north. So we're talking about Huns and later on into to Khazars. Yes, talking about the Romans reaching the Caspian, that was a very rare event. I think very, Pompey yeah. achieved it in the 60s uh, BCE. Um, the most westerly Latin inscription that's ever been found, apart from one discovered in a cave somewhere in Kyrgyzstan, which uh, there's a great debate about whether it's really in Latin at all. Um, but anyway, the most uh, easterly Latin inscription is an inscription left, a rough carving left by a, a Roman legionary on the shores of the Caspian, just south of uh, Baku. So that is the absolute easternmost point of which we have any proof. that, And, and he says that he's a legionary of the Legio, the, the, the 12th legion, the Fulminata. So, and, the, and he mentions the Emperor Domitian at the end Domitian, of the 1st okay. century uh, CE. So yes, that is the furthest. Um, and, until the great campaign of the Emperor Heraclius in the beginning of the 7th century, that's the furthest east that Romans get. Right. I don't know that Heraclius reached the Caspian. Not the Caspian, but no. But close. Point south, yes. Um, and uh, then there's a long hiatus. Uh, and in the 11th century, Basil II actually... Uh, goes very close, uh, reaches the Caspian um, in in his efforts to stem what some scholars would describe as proto-Seljuk or Turkmen raids and is turned back, again, I think by scorpions and mm. snakes yes. and the like. The same thing that <laughs> yes. happened to Pompeii yes. a thousand years That's earlier. That's right, yes. So, you know, if you go too far west, you encounter scorpions. <laughs> <laughs> too far uh, east. Uh, so Yes, 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 yes <laughs> too far east. So, so we, we have Asia Minor, uh, we've fixed that on our horizon, Greeks and Romans to the west, and we've got Iran to the southeast, and uh, due south we've got the what I call the mountain arena, that great area enclosing Arabia and Iraq and Syria, greater Syria, uh, which is enclosed by mountains all the way around it. Um, and then we have, I mentioned, um, and that of course is the area where the Arabs eventually emerged from in the 7th century, and we also have the... Uh, Eurasian steppe to the north, where there are Scythians, so-called, by the Greeks, described by Herodotus in great detail. There are Huns, and then later there are Turks, and of course Russians too uh, come from that direction. Um, one, dis one direction we shouldn't forget is due east. You'll say due east is the Caspian Sea, but the Caspian Sea can be crossed, and on the east side of it is Turkmenistan and then Uzbekistan. So this is Silk Road country. And from many points of view, uh, the world that we're talking about can be included in Silk Road, or rather Silk Road's territory, as we're taught to say these days. Um, the quickest routes from Central Asia to uh, Europe were across the Russian steppe. Um, others, of course, went through Iran and Syria, but the Caspian route is also a possibility. But the really important axis from our point of view, talking about the 3rd, 7th centuries, is this Derbend Pass, which I mentioned earlier. And the Derbend Pass is uh, a three and a half kilometer gap between the eastern end of the Great Caucasus and the western shore of the Caspian. And it was seized upon by the Iranians throughout history but especially in the Sassanid period. The Sassanid period runs from 224 to 651, so 400 years of this dynasty, which was very antagonistic towards Rome and fought major battles and campaigns with Rome at different points from the 3rd to the 7th centuries. Um, but actually, and, and of course, uh, we don't know very much about Sassanid Iranian history from Iranian sources, uh, because there aren't very many sources, and the ones that there are are very hard to interpret, uh, because they take a highly mythical and epic approach yeah. to the description of history. So a lot of what, a lot of what we know about Iran comes from uh, Greek and Roman sources, which of course all have their own uh, spin. Um, but it's very important for us to keep in mind that the 
real enemy of the Sassanid Empire wasn't to the West, the way we always see it because we focus on Roman sources, East Roman sources. Uh, the real enemy is to the North. It's Biblical, Gog and Magog, the Scythians, whatever you like to call them, the Turks, ultimately from the 5th century onwards begin to appear. And there are the Hephthalites, a type of Hun, who range along the northern border of the Sassanid Empire, from the great Caucasus range that we've talked about, and then on the other eastern end of the uh, Caspian Sea, along the Alborz Mountains, the border between Turkmenistan and Iran. And on both those sides of the Caspian, both west, where we are, and east, on the Turkmenistan side, there are large walls built by the Sassanids out of stone, blocking the gaps between the mountains and the sea. And this was a very important thing to do because the Sassanids several times, especially at the end of the 5th century, suffered major catastrophic defeats. Even rulers of the Sassanid Empire were killed in these campaigns um, at the hands of the Hephthalites. So this Derbend Pass, just three and a half kilometers in width, uh, was fortified with a long double wall, a northern wall and a southern wall, with a gap of less than a kilometer between them. And then they were bound together at the east end by a harbour and at the west end by a, an extremely impressive fortress, the Narinkala, which is the dominant feature of the town of Derbend today and which has recently been restored and it's extremely impressive. And then there's a 42 kilometre wall which stretches up into the mountains through the forests up into the Great Caucasus until it reaches a point where nobody could conceivably pass at which point the wall simply stops. So this is a real tangible uh, frontier against these mythical enemies, the horrendous uh, forces of Gog and Magog, uh, and of course this whole scenario of fear of the northern barbarian is echoed in Surah 18 of the Qur'an, where uh, Alexander the Great appears in a shadowy, somewhat prophetic form, rather a surprise to find in the Qur'an, and uh, we hear about the bronze wall that he built against Gog and Magog. So this wall in the Derbend Pass is a Sassanid wall built in the, starting in the 5th century, but really built in its present shape in the 6th century, and then rebuilt many times through the Middle Ages. Um, but uh, legend, of course, takes it back to at least Alexander the Great. Yeah, and there have been some very um, interesting and thorough publications of archaeological work done on these Sasanian fortification projects, which, which are quite massive. Yes. Um, and in, in part, they, they're coming in to, to um, uh, fill some of the holes in our knowledge of Sasanian history, uh, simply the very fact that the Sasanian monarchs could organize this level of infrastructure construction um, is, is, is one of the arguments that's used in favor of a stronger Sasanian state. Uh, of Sasanian monarchs who can uh, c command and direct the resources of their empire um, more in a more centralized fashion because these are pr pretty massive projects and couldn't be carried out by a decentralized feudal, right? Um, and uh, right, so the Sasanians have a very um, personal, a very close interest in making sure that they control um, movement from the north. And, and exactly what you said is, is right. In the 5th century, the Sasanians are so preoccupied with their northern frontier, especially the northeastern one and towards Central Asia, that there's this long period of peace with the Roman Empire. Um, even so, it doesn't appear that either empire, east or west, and you mentioned also the territories to the south of the Caucasus all the way down to Arabia, even the Arabs, when they uh, established their own empire in the 7th century, it doesn't seem that any of these states managed to control the Caucasus or impose themselves on it in a, in a uh, durable, long-lasting way. No, that's um, absolutely right. They didn't. Uh, they were desperately concerned to control the passes through the great Caucasus range. Uh, but they all understood, in the end, sooner or later, that that had to be done by the local people. And the people immediately to the south of the Caucasus Range are, of course, the Georgians, uh, who are still there in the shape of the modern state of Georgia, which lies 
just to the north of Armenia, and both lie to the east of Turkey. The trouble with Georgia, though, is that it uh, con constitutes a rather easily traversable high road from the Caspian to the Black Sea, uh, whereas Armenia is a much more mountainous region. Of course, Georgia has the more spectacular mountains in the shape of the Great Caucasus, but Armenia is more uh, completely mountainous than uh, Georgia is, even though the mountains are lower. Uh, and it is therefore a pretty impenetrable area. Uh, and I think that must be the reason why the Armenians have uh, managed to maintain such a very, very distinctive civilization right up to the present day. Yes, the Armenians and the Georgians and the subgroups, I guess, if I can call them that, Abkhazians. Yes. And so, so these are names that you read in sixth century sources, yes. and they're all still there. Exactly. Um, I think the Abkhazians even have a quasi-autonomous state. Well, and yes, that is the, the tragedy of um, present-day Georgia ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990. The two regions of Abkhazia, uh, which is on the Black Sea, it's the northwestern corner of Georgia along the Black Sea coast, uh, and then, of course, South Ossetia, uh, which is in the middle of the country, have been, in effect, broken off and absorbed by Russia. Uh, and that is a huge bone of contention between the Georgians uh, and the Russians. Um, you mentioned earlier, Anthony, that uh, this is a region of great ethno-linguistic diversity. And uh, talking about the town of Suhumi, for example, on the Black Sea, the modern town of Suhumi, which um, the ancient Greeks called Dioscorias, um, Pliny talks about how the Romans used to do business in that town and they had to have 130 interpreters <laughs> in order to do business with the people of... Uh, and this is not 130 interpreters all dealing with the same language. There's 130 different languages. And Strabo, who lived a little bit before Pliny, uh, in the time of the Emperor Augustus, so at the beginning of the Roman Empire, uh, he talks about the 70 languages that were spoken in the uh, Caucasus um, area. So the ancients were already deeply impressed, and I think all, uh, still today, uh, if you look at an ethno-linguistic map of the Caucasus, you'll see that there are roughly 50 different ethno-linguistic units, wow. but all scattered in uh, together with each other, no clear boundaries, uh, a real mosaic. And this, of course, is very characteristic of regions where there are high mountains with relatively little permeability between the different parts of the mountains. It's the same, for example, in Kurdistan, where the local dialects are often barely comprehensible from one valley um, to the next. Um, Strabo, the aforementioned uh, Roman geographer, who came from Amasya in Asia Minor, and he was almost a local, and he, yeah. he understood this region, um, he says that the highlanders of Georgia, he calls them the Iberians, of course, um, resemble the Scythians to the north, whereas the lowlanders resemble the Persians. <coughs> but uh, when Christianity came to Georgia, um, you see again this distinction. Uh, basically, Christianity conquers Georgia as far north, as far vertically as the vine can be cultivated. The settled lands where the vine is cultivated, Georgians today still, of course, are famous for their wine consumption, and they do produce very excellent... What happens uh, above that line? Above that is paganism. Um, and we'll come, I think, to talk a little bit um, soon about uh, the inventor of the Armenian and Georgian alphabets, and this is relevant to him. Yeah. Uh, but today, if you go there, you go to the north um, northwestern corner of Georgia, to the area called Svaneti, high up in the Caucasus Mountains, and that place is just like a kind of treasury of Christian objects uh, from churches, icons, uh, all sorts of treasures which were brought up there from the plains of Georgia when the Arabs invaded in the 7th century, and they've remained in this mountain right. refuge treasury ever since. And this makes Svaneti a particularly interesting uh, place to uh, visit. So we have an area that's geographically uh, difficult, um, it's broken up, it, it uh, encourages the creation of um, s separate local uh, polities, 
um, an area that is not easy for outside empires to control, um, an area where it's defined on the north as, as an, uh, by efforts to exclude movement from the steppe. Um, and at the same time now, we also have um, an accumulation of multiple cultural and religious influences on the region. Um, I, I, we should add that moving toward the east, we start getting into Iranian languages, which are very close exactly. uh, to this region. And so in the same way that we have empires abutting on this uh, world, we also have different religious traditions, uh, both indigenous, but also coming from the outside. Um, so what are the main layers that you see? Um, and are they sort of evenly distributed throughout this area? You mean the cultural layers? Cultural, cultural or religious. Well, let's uh, start by continuing a little bit with what we were saying about languages and then getting on to the question of religion. Um, and let's concentrate on the three nations who were most connected to the East Roman Empire, that's, say, the Armenians, the Georgians, and the Albanians. Now, these are not the Albanians of the Balkans that we're familiar with as a state sandwiched between Greece and Croatia. Uh, these are the Albanians of the Caucasus. And the um, Albanians of the Caucasus uh, are today, this region is uh, the northern end of Azerbaijan, which is the state sandwiched between Georgia to the west and the Caspian Sea to the east, uh, whose capital is Baku, already mentioned. Um, and also, uh, the Albanians lived in what is today Dagestan, the Russian province mm -hmm. of Dagestan, yeah. which borders on Azerbaijan immediately to the north, and where the city of Derbend, which we've been talking about, is uh, situated. Now, it's really interesting to see that these um, languages spoken in Armenia, in Georgia, and in Albania uh, belong to three different linguistic families. The uh, Armenian language is an Indo-European language, but it's not actually an Iranian language, even though there are very substantial links between Armenians, Armenian culture and Iranian culture. Um, the Georgian language belongs to the South Caucasian group of languages, and the Albanian language belongs, because it's hardly spoken today, to the Northeast Caucasian uh, group of languages. But that has essentially died out, uh, except for a couple of villages in Azerbaijan where a language called Udin is still spoken but by about 8,000 people. And that's the end of the history of the ancient language of Caucasian Albanian. Uh, and when we talk about the inventor of the Ar Armenian alphabet, we'll talk also about uh, this language because he invented also an alphabet for that language as well. Um, the reason why Armenia and Georgia remain Christian, whereas Azerbaijan, which starts off as Christian Albania, eventually becomes Muslim, is that... Azerbaijan is extremely easily accessible from Iran. And so, just as the Sassanids had always wanted to control that fertile, low-lying territory of Azerbaijan next to the Caspian, so um, the modern Iranian states, uh, the Safavids, the Qajars, and so on, and up to the present day, have always been very involved in that um, region. And so it was natural, of course, that uh, Islam should... Uh, expand into Azerbaijan, where the population today uh, is definitely 85% Muslim, probably actually rather more than that, and of course Shiite Muslim. Uh, it is an overwhelming yeah. Shiite state, just as Iran is. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to recall that the turning point for Islam in the um, Eastern Caucasus was the 11th century again with the Seljuks, and I remember a story that uh, as Tugrul Bey was conquering Mesopotamia, and his cousin, I think one of his cousins was bringing all these Turkmen armies from the north, and he did not want them in Mesopotamia because they would make a mess of it. Exactly. And there's yes. this saying where he says, oh, just send them off yes. to Azerbaijan yes. and just put them somewhere. And, and I, that, of course, think, is the beginning of the end for the so-called Byzantine Empire in, the, yes. in Eastern Rome, because uh, then, of course, yes. they penetrate um, Asia Minor, what we call Turkey. Now... Um, Moving on to the other matter that you raised, which was the religious patterns in this area, what we really need to do is just to start by mentioning that the basic religious culture, 
before the coming of Christianity, let's say before the 4th century, was a curious mix of uh, shamanism, paganism, and Zoroastrianism because of the vicinity of uh, Iran. And uh, it's only very recently that people have started to study the pre-Christian history of Armenia, because Armenians on the whole, who are the people who mainly study Armenia, tend to study Christian Armenia exclusively. Yeah. Uh, but it has now been established that, in fact, the evidence that we can find, archaeological mainly, uh, for pre-Christian Armenia, does reflect a quite deeply Zoroastrianized society. Um, this was a revolution, I mean, in, in understanding Armenia. Absolutely, and what, yes. I remember, even when I was a graduate student, it was associated with Nina Garsoyan's work. Exactly. In just hammering home all the many cultural affinities between Armenia and James and Russell at Harvard, yes. also, yes, exactly. And uh, this uh, pressure from Zoroastrian Iran will continue uh, throughout the early Christian centuries until the Zoroastrian Empire itself is destroyed by the Arab invasions in the 650s. But that's just background. Uh, we need to say something then about Christianity. Uh, there is plenty of evidence, literary evidence, that Christianity seeps up northwards into Armenia from Syria mm. in the, maybe already the second century, but certainly in the third century. We know this uh, from literary sources like the uh, ecclesiastical history written by the Bishop of Caesarea in Palestine, Eusebius, at the beginning of the fourth century. Uh, and then we have a bunch of legends about the conversion of Armenia and of Georgia to Christianity, which both locate those conversions in the, as far as one can work out, in the second and third decades of the fourth century. Traditionally, we're told that Armenia converted to Christianity in 301. That's what all Armenians say, especially church Armenians. Um, and they're very keen, of course, to ram home the point that Armenia was the first state to accept Christianity. But it does seem that they were uh, very, close, very close to uh, Rome in becoming Christian. And uh, we also have uh, a similar legendary account of the Christianization of Georgia. Uh, and in both cases, it appears that the impetus for Christianization in the early 4th century was now coming not so much from Syria in the south and in Syriac, a Semitic language, as had been the case in the 3rd century, but it was now coming from the west, from Cappadocia, that's to say the eastern and southeastern part of uh, modern-day Turkey, and of course in Greek. Uh, and we have all sorts of uh, exotic stories about how uh, Bishop Gregory came from Caesarea, modern Kayseri, uh, and preached Christianity to the king, Tiridates, or Tiridat in Armenian, who resisted, uh, was a terrible tyrant, uh, and was a very angry man, and he was turned into a wild boar, uh, and then when he accepted Christianity, he was turned back again. Uh, so um, these stories, um, one has to take with a pinch of salt, perhaps, but they are fundamental to the culture of Armenian Christianity uh, ever since. And what happens then is that there is a constant interaction between uh, Armenian Christianity and Roman Constantinopolitan Christianity in Greek. At the same time, Armenian Christians continue to remember and to play with their links with Syria to the south, and there's a strong theological influence coming from there. We can talk a little bit more about that uh, in a moment, but before we get off the subject of the religions of the Caucasus, we must, of course, mention also the coming of Islam uh, in the 7th century. But as you rightly remarked, the Arabs could not control the Caucasus any more than the Romans or the Iranians could. Of course, they, all were, they were always trying, um, sometimes they succeeded for a few decades here or a few decades there, yeah, but essentially no that, yeah. it was uh, impossible and one had to rule through local princes who were more or less obliged and indebted 
to either Iran or to Rome, but of course were always ready to double-cross Iran and Iran when it suited them. Very much the same situation that we had in Eastern Europe during the Cold War, when countries were having to exist on that borderline between communism to the East and uh, Western Europe. So uh, Islam definitely penetrates uh, Georgia, which as I mentioned earlier is quite easily penetrable in an east-west direction. Uh, it penetrates eastern Georgia, what we call Iberia, much more easily than it does western Georgia on the Black Sea, which is always a much more Christian, firmly rooted Christian area oriented on the Black Sea and beyond it on Constantinople and the Mediterranean. Uh, but Islam does nonetheless come in, and there is a period uh, from the 7th century to the 10th century when we really do not have very much evidence for the Christian life of Armenia and Georgia. In general, the material culture of those areas is very patchy. It goes through periods of great flowering and blossoming and activity, uh, especially in the 7th century, yes, just as the Arab invasions were starting, and then again in the 9th and 10th centuries, and then again in the 13th century. But in the meantime, there are stretches of great difficulty when not much was done, and one of those periods is the period from, let's say, the late 7th or early 8th century to the 10th century, when we hardly have any buildings. But from the 7th century, we have a mass of very impressive uh, buildings, uh, which have been uh, studied uh, notably by uh, Christina Marangi in our day, um, who has already contributed to your excellent series of podcasts. Um, so we have a situation where um, Islam is penetrating, uh, local princes are being manipulated by the caliphate, by first the Umayyad caliphate up to 750, and then by the Abbasid caliphate afterwards. Um, and I think perhaps that's as much as we need to say about Islam in the context of this particular podcast. Yeah, the, I find the, um, the, the burst of activity in the 7th century in Armenia quite striking, especially when you compare it to the, the Roman Empire where nothing is going on. Like, exactly. I mean, this is the most extraordinary period yes. where there is a great wealth of building to be studied and inscriptions. Now compare what we have in Constantinople, let alone any other East Roman city yeah. from that period, and, and, and also what we have, or rather don't have, from Western Europe. Almost nothing. Uh, of course, there is yeah. a lot going on in the Caliphate. But in the Christian world, the Caucasian area is unique in providing a mass of material from the 7th and the 8th centuries. Yeah, and I mean, Rome is struggling to survive for most of the 7th century, first against the Persians, then against the Arabs. Uh, but it's interesting that once the, um, when the Persians take Jerusalem in 614? 614, yes. Um, and there's apparently some damage done to some of the churches in Jerusalem. A collection is taken up. And they turn to Armenia for help. Yes. Um, for building, again, yes. in Jerusalem. Um, and um, so I think, so one thing that we should probably mention is that, so getting into the subdivisions within Christianity, that... Georgia remains, uh, in terms of the theological controversies and disputes, it remains on the side of Constantinople uh, that is accepting the Council of Chalcedon. And Eventually is accepted, uh, yeah, yes. yes. Uh, what we would call sort of Byzantine Orthodoxy, whereas the Armenian Christian tradition, it, it kind of vacillates on this point. Uh, generally, it doesn't accept Chalcedon. I think when it's left to its own devices, they prefer not to, but there are apparently plenty of Chalcedonian Armenians at any time that the emperors can use, employ, or you know, use against the other parts of the Armenian church that don't want to accept Chalcedon. Um, anyway, I, I have found it to be not so monolithic on that point. No, that's right. So uh, Armenia seems to want to preserve its independence in that sense, but also, you know, maintains its close ties to Constantinople. The Council of Chalcedon was held in 451, we should perhaps say, yeah. and it was a fundamental definition, theological definition of the nature of Christ as being uh, both divine and human. And this was something that a lot of people found it hard to absorb. The reason the Armenians found it hard to absorb was nothing to do with theology at all. It was simply that they were fighting for their lives at that moment in 451 against the Sassanids yes. who had invaded them and were trying to turn them into Zoroastrians, not Christians at all. 
But uh, the big change uh, in Armenian orientation on the theological front comes more in the early 6th century. And then the Georgians also, um, as you say, vacillate. Um, anyway, the Armenians at the beginning of the 6th century reject Charles Eden, just as had the Christians of most of the Christians of Syria and of Egypt. And so they become what we call Miaphysites or anti-Chalcedonians. The Georgians uh, distinguish themselves from that stance by actually gradually, by the end of the 6th century, accepting Chalcedon. And so once more you have this picture of the Armenians in their mountain fastness doing their own thing, and the Georgians yes. on their high road from the Black Sea to the Caspian, much more permeable to the world, uh, to the West. And uh, I like to think uh, of these regions as being very, very good examples of uh, what I call uh, cultural commonwealths. So we have the Roman cultural commonwealth, which is not just uh, the Roman Empire, which goes up to a more or less clearly defined frontier. Ha, 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 because, of course, we all know that frontiers <laughs> never are clearly defined. But anyway, there was a kind of frontier there. Um, and then we have also, uh, beyond the frontier, the world of which Caucasia is very typical, where there was a profound influence from the Christian culture of East Rome, but not always uh, the possibility of direct political control or military collaboration. And then on the East, we have the Iranian cultural commonwealth, the world of Zoroastrian, uh, Iran, uh, which also tries to project itself into Caucasus. And so we have this coming together of both these cultural commonwealths uh, meshed with each other or overlaying each other, and we see numerous influences, linguistic, uh, literary, religious, obviously, and obviously political influences too, going backwards and forwards across this huge, fuzzily defined cultural frontier. Yes, I, so I was exposed to the uh, concept of an Iranian commonwealth by my friend Steve Rapp. Uh, yes, indeed. We, we were in graduate school together oh. in Michigan in the 90s, um, and he's written a lot about that. He has. Um, yeah. Um, and so very good stuff it is. Yes. Uh, so this is sort of the idea that, um, I mean, there's been a lot written about the, the Byzantine Commonwealth or in, it, in different terms, also the Roman one, though you, you just called it a Roman Commonwealth. So this is kind of the idea that these centers of power can diffuse um, their culture in various ways, which they can sometimes use as what today we would call soft power. Uh, that is sort of cultural mechanisms by which to influence and control, per, you know, region, uh, regions and peoples on their periphery. Um, and it's pretty clear that the Iranians definitely had one of these, and it extended into the Caucasus. Um, and um, I, I've actually found in terms of, you know, digression, in terms of undergraduate teaching of this world, um, and not just in the first millennium, but from the, uh, you know, 500s BC on, uh, to teach it as a, uh, this is to American undergraduates, yes. right? So to teach it as a, a Greek and then Ro Roman commonwealth in the West meeting with an Iranian one uh, in the East. That's and that's a, just a framework for discussing everything down to the end of the first millennium. That's right. Um, and it, it, works, it works very nicely. And even when the Arabs come along, they just kind of squeeze between these two and basically pick up pieces from either one. Um, so yeah, these are very powerful um, sort of cultural networks. And in Armenia, especially, you can see them both operating simultaneously. I mean, the Armenians, you know, kind of mix and match their elements very well. Uh, now, I think we, um, talking about Armenian identity, need to say something about the Armenian language, which is impenetrable to most of us, certainly to me, uh, but nonetheless is a subject of huge interest. And uh, it was spoken, of course, in Armenia, as far as we know, uh, before Christian times. But it was not a written language. I've already mentioned that Christianity came at Armenia from two different directions, from the south in Syriac and from the west in Greek. So if you were an Armenian faithful man or woman standing in one of these new churches that was being put up in the middle of the 4th century and listening to the liturgy, you would have been hearing it celebrated, the Mass that is to say, in Syriac and or Greek. And in particular you would have heard the readings from the Gospels in Syriac or Greek. And it was necessary for there to be on hand a priest or somebody else who was capable of making a simultaneous transition 
uh, into Armenian. Otherwise, people just did not understand anything. And hearing the gospel is, of course, the best way of propagating Christianity uh, to those who don't have time to study it. Now, Mesrop Mashtots was uh, a, an Armenian uh, gentleman of ascetic uh, disposition uh, who was born, I'm not quite sure when, probably in the 360s or 370s, um, and saw the problem. He was very good at simultaneous translation, so he had the job of translating the gospel, but he saw that there was need for a longer-term uh, solution. So um, he was a linguistic genius, and I think he deserves to be a much better known figure from late antiquity than he is, because as with everything Armenian, his fame is rather confined to Armenian scholarship. Uh, but he is actually the man who sat down and, uh, starting in 405, as far as one can see on the basis of the most recently published research, he um, invented a new alphabet, modelled on the Greek alphabet, for the Armenian language. And he began, ah, it's worth adding that the, um, an earlier figure, a slightly earlier figure called Daniel, had already tried to invent an Armenian script, but based on Syriac, and that just didn't work for Armenian because it wouldn't convey all the vowel sounds uh, that were required. Ah, Greek is good for vowel sounds. Exactly. So uh, along comes Mesrop. He makes this uh, beautiful Armenian alphabet uh, that still survives today, very much so. Um, and then he applies himself to conjuring forth an alphabet for the Georgian language, which he didn't know at all, but simply on the basis of listening to the sounds, he was able, as I tell you, he's a linguistic genius, to make um, another alphabet, quite different from the Armenian one, but still visibly, somewhat less visibly, but still um, experts assure us it's modelled on Greek. And then, to complete the hat-trick, he did the same for Caucasian Albanian. Albanian. Wait, wait, so, so yes. you're saying the Georgian script, the script that they use for Georgian, yes. is modeled distantly on squiggles. Greek? Yes, exactly. It yes. looks like Sanskrit yes. to me. I, I was puzzled by this assertion, and, and as I say, I'm a complete novice in these matters, but uh, nonetheless, I, I take the word of the experts uh, for it. Now, um, we could talk, of course, a lot about these uh, scripts, um, and Caucasian Albanian is especially interesting because, as I mentioned, um, the Caucasian Albanian community being on the level ground, the plain adjacent to Iran, was fairly quickly eradicated by Islam, whereas Georgia and Armenia survived as Christian kingdoms. And so today there's very little um, population left, as I mentioned, about 8,000 people probably who still speak uh, this modern descendant of Caucasian Albanian. Uh, but in 1935, uh, an Armenian scholar flicking through manuscripts in the famous Matinadaran library there in um, Armenia in Yerevan did find a list of equivalences between uh, Armenian and Albanian words. Uh, and then in 1947, somebody found an inscription in Azerbaijan uh, which had Arme uh, Albanian on it, but neither of these really sufficed to decipher the language. Uh, until in 1975, there was a fire in the monastery of St. Catherine at Sinai, the famous Greek monastery there with uh, its huge library. And a tower, the internal uh, floors of the tower collapsed and revealed, once the dust and the ashes had settled, the most extraordinary collection of uh, fragmentary manuscripts in a whole range of languages. Uh, and there were about 100 pages when eventually it was all sorted through in Albanian uh, lectionary, uh, that's to say, a collection of gospel readings. And this was the key to the decipherment of the Albanian language, which is now known ever since the 1990s, thanks to the efforts in particular of a Georgian scholar. So this work of uh, Mesrop Mashtots is absolutely fundamental in securing the continuing identity of the Georgians, the Armenians in particular, and their survival. Uh, without this uh, invention of the alphabet, they would not have written down their own language. They would also not have translated from Syriac and from Greek the huge wealth of ecclesiastical texts. And of course, first and foremost, the Bible, starting with the very simple text, the parables of... Uh, of um, of, uh, sorry, not the power, the Proverbs of Solomon, 
Uh, that was the very first text uh, that Mesrop's really? uh, huh. translated, and then he went on and did the whole, almost the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and relatively quickly too, he had a lot of uh, young disciples. Now, um, we lament the loss of the great library of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, we regret how much ancient literature went down with that library. But we neglect, I, when I say we, I, I mean people who study the Greek tradition, we neglect a huge wealth of text that's available in Armenian translation as a result of this initiative by uh, Mashtots in the 5th century. He died probably around about 450, 451. And we have in Armenian translation uh, extraordinary texts. A lot of the Jewish 1st uh, century writer Philo, uh, a lot of Eusebius, before-mentioned ecclesiastical historian. Uh, his chronicle survives only in Armenian and in a Latin translation by Jerome from the end of the 4th century. But we also have secular literature, a lot of philosophical commentaries, especially the Alexandrian tradition of Aristotelian logic. Um, there is a series called, um, no, it's not a series, it's a volume, I think, called The Cambridge History of Byzantium, uh, which actually uh, says nothing about Georgia. It says quite a lot about Armenia. It's quite indicative of the attitude of Byzantinists to the Caucasian world, that they feel that they can simply leave it on the sidelines. Um, there's another volume from the same publisher called the um, Cambridge Intellectual History of Byzantium, which I seem to recall is edited by one um, Anthony Kalelis. Never heard of uh, him. <laughs> Now, that volume actually says nothing at all about this extraordinary wealth of Armenian philosophy, geography, history, secular scholarship um, of high quality, which is available in Armenian translation, which is more and more being translated also into modern European languages, um, but it's simply not visible to the student of Byzantium. And this is something that one sees also in the history of architecture, the history of art, right. uh, simple writing out of Transcaucasus ah. from it's a great disservice to the memory of this extraordinary man, uh, Mashtots. Yeah, no, so, and this is part of what I'm doing with the podcast uh, in other episodes as well. I'm trying to, uh, you know, bring audiences interested uh, in Byzantium to see these other sides of the Commonwealth. I'm in particular, I'm interested in, so um, uh, Meshrop is sometimes put under the rubric of the Hellenizing school, yes. right? A, a Hellenizing movement in Armenian intellectual yes. history. Um, the idea being that um, either he or many of his students had actually studied in the cities of the Eastern Roman Empire, um, and they had learned all that one could learn there, and this informed their translation activities and the creation of Ar Armenian script and, and, and literature. And Mashtot, who was a very hyperactive uh, gentleman, um, no sooner had he invented the alphabet than he set off to the mountains to missionize, leaving his pupils to do the translation <laughs> yes. work, um, because you couldn't keep him in one place. And then he set off on, on a very, very long journey um, to Constantinople, where he interviewed the emperor, Theodosius II, who ruled from 408 to 450, um, and persuaded him to allow the establishment of Armenian schools on the Roman side of the frontier, because in 387... Yeah the Iranian and Roman empires had divided Armenia between them, four-fifths to the Iranians and one-fifth to the Romans. And on the Roman side, the, the Byzantines, so-called, the East Romans, were not at all keen on cultivating local languages. But Mesrops, uh, Mashtots, went to the court in Constantinople and he got a permit to actually establish schools. Um, Theodosius was a calligrapher. Indeed, yes. And yes. he would have, I think, been very interested yes. in, in these matters. That's right. Um, in fact, you know that a, a gospel book copied by him is said to have survived unt until the 14th century in Constantinople. Oh, that would be a wonderful Xan thing to behold. Xanthopoulos yes. refers to it as uh -huh. we have it in the, in the Imperial Library. Really? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I see these activities. So, you, so you're exactly right. I mean, these shouldn't be seen as just a chapter in Armenian history. This is a chapter also in, in Byzantine or wider Greek intellectual history. But you know, it's not the... It's not only the Byzantinists who are to blame for this. Uh, it's the Armenians themselves, because they are very uh, resolved to cultivate their own tradition, which, of course, they've done with brilliant success over the generations and the centuries. Um, but they're not very keen on seeing themselves 
in context with all the wider world that I've been talking about. And you see this, for example, in um, art exhibitions. For example, the um, Metropolitan Museum in New York had um, an exhibition uh, in 2018 through to early 2019 called Armenia! Exclamation mark. I like the exclamation mark <laughs> in particular. Um, and this um, exhibition uh, was almost entirely made up of exhibits from Armenia or from Armenian collections like the great um, Gulbenkian Museum, for example, in Lisbon. Uh, but it didn't in any way touch on the problem of how to contextualize Armenia, not even seeing it against the context of Georgia and Caucasian Albania, let alone against the context of Iran or the Arab Caliphate. Uh, so Armenian scholars are quite responsible for this isolation, this purda in which um, Armenian studies continue to exist uh, to this day. Yeah, there's another context in which we can put this, which is a context um, of languages that are in this very period that are inventing scripts and that survive, even if only for a while. Coptic is an example. Um, Gothic is an example. And Ufilas, the inventor of the Gothic script and translator of the Bible into Gothic, um, had a similar career of engagement with the, with, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. Conversely, of languages that don't make it out of these centuries, um, and even languages that had survived thus far uh, within the Roman Empire, um, such as Phrygian and some of the other native languages of Anatolia, perhaps. Um, I think Thracian makes it as long as, a, as late as the sixth century, afterwards it disappears. So it's, it's this interesting parallel, uh, these parallel stories of languages that acquire scripts and survive, um, and those that don't. Now, the Goths didn't survive, but that's because they, you know, met the armies of Justinian or whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I mean, okay, they, maybe they would have. I, I, who knows? Um, but it seems to be a, a, a period where the, this is, um, it's a make-or-break period for many languages and cultural traditions. That's right. And, and, and this is precisely why Armenian needs to be put into that context, because exactly. it has peer languages that, that are experiencing similar histories, and it's, it's great that they, that they survived. Yeah, so the church is really giving a push to these local uh, cultures. Some historians have seen this as a kind of political separatism vis-a-vis -vis Constantinople. I don't think we need to do that, but there's no doubt um, that local cultures are flourishing out of a need to demonstrate uh, the difference and the innovativeness of the Christian faith. Uh, to be distinctive, not just vis-a-vis -vis Judaism, but vis-a-vis -vis everything in the surrounding world. Um, and, of course, we see the same thing in Ethiopia with the emergence yes. of the Gez uh, yep. script in the 4th um, century and the wonderful inscriptions that you can still see today in Aksum, uh, both in Greek and in Gez uh, and Coptic in Egypt, as you say. And so some of the earlier specimens are in, in Jerusalem, um, inscriptions. Yes. This is yes. Ar Armenian, right? Yes, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the Caucasian aspect of Jerusalem and Sinai. I already mentioned Sinai as being the source of our main body of Caucasian-Albanian text, only very recently discovered. Um, for me, this extraordinary monastery founded by Justinian in the first half of the 6th century at the foot of Mount Sinai, along with the holy city of Jerusalem itself and the Palestinian holy places, is one of the real flashpoints of the uh, East Roman cultural commonwealth. Uh, it's, these are both places where people come together from many, many different uh, linguistic and cultural backgrounds. They talk to each other. They spend long nights, not just in the vigils and liturgies of the holy places, in the Church of the Resurrection and so on, but also in their various hotels and hostels and pilgrim digs. Um, and they learn things, and they write, of course. Uh, there's the Spanish um, pilgrim, Lady Egeria, in the 380s, who writes uh, beautiful accounts of her experiences back home to her sisters. I don't know whether she was a nun or just uh, one lady who had lots of lady friends, but anyway, uh, they were all interested in finding out about the holy places. And it is a very striking fact that there were a lot of very pious people coming down from the Caucasus 
to Jerusalem. Um, one text that we have from the early 6th century mentions uh, a group of 400 Armenian tourists <laughs> trooping down from Jerusalem to uh, Jericho and calling in, dropping in on the blessed ascetic Euthymius in his ah, uh, lonely yes. retreat in the desert, uh, much to his uh, disgust. It's a little bit like the over-tourism that we're experiencing in our yes. European cities uh, these days. So Jerusalem was a bit like that. Um, but it's extraordinarily interesting to see that um, we have a lot of um, ep epigraphical material in uh, Armenian and Georgian from Jerusalem. In fact, the earliest Georgian uh, Inscri inscribed texts that we have are from Jerusalem uh, and there's the famous so-called bird mosaic outside the Damascus gate in Jerusalem that was found in the 1890s and uh, which is a very very high quality piece of work inscribed around the edge with an Armenian dedicatory inscription in rather inept workmanship so that must have been an Armenian visitor who was given the job of doing the Armenian text um, but uh, the actual work of the birds is an experienced mosaicist, uh, presumably of Greek culture. Um, so yes, and there are quite a lot of Georgian inscriptions also to be found, as well as Armenian ones, all around Jerusalem. Uh, and these have recently been uh, studied rather thoroughly in a volume that came out a year or so ago. Um, the Georgians eventually acquired, I'm not quite sure when, uh, maybe towards the end of our period, uh, a monastery of their own, which um, still survives as a building, the Monastery of the Holy Cross uh, on the western side of uh, Jerusalem. We definitely know that there was an, um, uh, an Iberian monastery near to the Tower of David in about 450. That's the earliest attested Georgian monastery in Jerusalem. And, and then, of course, there's the immensely impressive Armenian Patriarchate in the southwest corner of the old city. Um, which to this day is a major center of um, Armenian culture uh, worldwide. Um, I'm not sure that we know exactly when that started, but my point is that the Armenians and the Georgians had very, very firm footholds in uh, the holy places. And of course, eventually in the uh, 11th century, the or late 10th century, I think, was it 988? I seem to remember the um, Iberians, the Georgians, founded their own monastery on Mount Athos, the Iberian monastery, Moni Iviron, Iviron. called in Greek, yeah. uh, which continued to be a largely Iberian monastery for several centuries before eventually becoming uh, Greek. So this is a very, very dynamic Christian culture and uh, in Caucasus, and it generates a lot of martyrs. Uh, I'm very, very struck by the amount of um, martyr cult that you get in this part of the world. Uh, we're talking um, today uh, in Athens on, I think it's the 10th of January today, of the year of grace 2020. Yesterday was January the 9th, the feast of St. Polyuctus of Melitini. Now, he is commonly regarded as an Armenian, uh, and he uh, was martyred in the early 4th century, I think, and the Empress Eudocia, the wife of Theodosius II at the beginning of the 5th century, uh, founded a, a church in Constantinople in the honour of this martyr. Her husband, Theodosius II, encouraged the collection of martyr relics, also of Persian martyrs, because naturally people in Transcaucasia were very clued in to what was going on in the world of Persian Christianity. Uh, and uh, we have uh, the story of how Theodosius encourage the building up of the great city of Martyropolis on the frontier between Rome and Iran so that there would be uh, a point not just well fortified but also defended by the relics of the martyrs. Uh, it's very striking, uh, I don't think this has ever been done, but to trace the um, dissemination of Caucasian martyr cult throughout the East Roman Empire uh, at this period. And, of course, uh, you may wish, as a pilgrim, to die in the Holy Land, but if you are not granted your wish and you return home safely, you will want to propagate uh, things that you've seen. You'll want to impress people by telling them all about it, um, but you'll also want to learn lessons from this very cosmopolitan devotional atmosphere of the Holy City. Uh, and, uh, in fact, 
some of the very earliest, in fact, the very earliest evidence we have for the stational liturgies in Jerusalem, that's to say the liturgies that were celebrated at the different points on the progression of Christ around the Holy City, in the different churches, is um, in Armenian. Armenian Did manuscripts which describe all of this liturgical sequence. And then the whole thing was transferred lock, stock and barrel to Armenia itself. And one sees, especially in the 7th century churches, for example, the great circular church at Svatnots, um, which Christina Marangi has studied so much, um, you will see also the continuation of this stational approach to liturgy, processing round the city and having um, liturgies in different places, really rebuilding the earthly Jerusalem in, Trans in Caucasia. Um, this, is, this is the one with the Roman eagles on it, right? That's right, very splendidly carved uh, Roman it, eagles with their wings widely spread on the capitals of the Church. Bring it down to earth. Yes. And, and it was visited by the Emperor Heraclius. I think he was, he was there for its dedication, I believe wasn't he? he? I'm yeah. not sure about that. No, no, Maybe. Okay. Anyway, so we're almost out of time. Um, any, do you have any concluding remarks uh, to our audience about the Caucasian world? Um, well, I think we should just note that uh, the uh, Armenians and the Georgians are very tough guys and they've <laughs> survived against all the odds and uh, of course they've also had recently 70 years of uh, communist rule which uh, aimed at um, severely limiting their exercise of their faith. If you travel around Georgia today you will find, uh, and Armenia too of course, you'll find churches are being restored instead of being allowed to collapse into the dust. Uh, monasteries are being revived, they have monks living in them, including in some of the old cave monasteries in the mountains of uh, Georgia. Um, and the political situation, which was pretty horrific in the 1990s and the first yeah. decade of this millennium, is now stabilizing. And I was reading just the other day that um, Armenia is the very best place to invest your money at the moment because it's going to have higher growth than anywhere else in Europe right. this coming year. Well, let's hope that these new conditions uh, create an atmosphere of more collaboration and openness so that uh, our fields can merge and not just be distinct like this. Uh, Amen to that. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Garth. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Anthony.